so interesting that we can bookend our Lord's Day with uh, Christmas Eve and then New Year's Eve and really just, I think, putting our face in interesting directions, uh, obviously considering the coming of Christ, but then now considering, I think when you, when you talk about the new year, whether you want to, whether you understand this or not, you're really talking about sovereignty and providence. Because you really have no idea what this new year holds for you. And that's kind of what we, we think about. We think about the new year. Oh, man, I wonder what this year is going to be. wonder, uh, you know, is it going to be different than last year? Is it going to be better? And so we kind of look at this. It's almost, uh, you almost look at the new year as the reset button, right? So, okay, this year, I'm going to do things a little differently. I'm going to kind of, you know, get my focus, you know, where it needs to be on things I need to have them on. So... I like that. I like that we have, God has given us these uh, sovereign opportunities to be able to think along those lines. And so we're going to take advantage of that. And each year we try to do what we call a New Year tune-up so that we get ourselves going in that direction. Now, sometimes getting started is easier than finishing something. Have you noticed that about yourself even? I mean, how many times have you started a project and, you know, there it sits? Or you started a good book, but, you know, you've uh, left a bookmarker in it, you know, for months or maybe even years, right? I've got a lot of those where you're looking around the shelves and you go, hey, oh, look at that marker right there. That's, that was like oh, six years ago. And that one was three. And that one was, we won't talk about that one, right? I don't even, you don't even remember reading that one, you know, but yet there's the marker. Maybe you started to clean your room or to clean out your closet or to clean out your car and you have great intentions, but there they sit. And the best that you can say is, I'll get to it. Years ago, Paul wrote to Titus to tell him, you have some unfinished business. There are unfinished churches on this island called Crete. And you got to finish them. You got to get them closer to what they need to be. What do they need to be? Ephesians 5 tells us that our Lord's aim and work is that the church be as the bride of Christ without wrinkle, spotless, and full of glory. Polycarp wrote this just 40 or so years after Jesus went back to heaven in his ascension. He said, And the presbyters also must be compassionate, merciful towards all men, turning back the sheep that are gone astray, visiting all the infirm, not neglecting a widow or an orphan or a poor man, but providing uh, always for that which is honorable in the sight of God and men. Let us therefore so serve him with fear and all reverence as he himself gave commandment and the apostles who preached the gospel to us and the prophets who proclaimed beforehand the coming of the Lord. End quote. Now again, that's Polycarp and he's just giving this just years, just right after uh, the Lord went to heaven. By the way, presbyters are the elders. He wrote that about the elders in the church. And what Polycarp was saying was this, make sure the servants that the Lord has given to his church, that is the elders, make sure that they are committed to true ministry until Jesus comes back. Now Jesus defined ministry. Jesus in Matthew 16 said that he would build his church. In 
Ephesians 4.11, we find out how, where it says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Will you listen to that? Because it has some, it has connectors to it. You have these people who are to equip these people to do all the work. Did you hear it? Did you follow it? All the work was not to be done by the apostles. All the work was not to be done by the prophets. All the work was not to be done by the evangelists. And then you have these pastor teachers. As saints, we are to be equipped so that we do the work of service. Who are the pastors and teachers? They are the elders. What do they do? Equip the saints. Who are the saints? All of us. What are we to do when we are equipped? The work of service. What is that? Everything. Right? I mean, and that means that there is an airtight connection between Jesus and the saints in doing the work of service in the church. And by the way, the other word for work of service is ministry. That's what that means. Sometimes you hear ministry, always, oh, that's the men of the cloth. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what it says here. It says the people that do the ministry are the believers. Saints. The word saints means holy ones or set apart ones. Those whom at salvation the Lord has set apart not only for that salvation but for service. In fact, Ephesians 2, we we love to quote verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Oh yes, preach it, right? That not of yourselves. Yes, he's a Calvinist, right? Not of yourselves, right? Okay, here we go. And then you get to verse 10. Where it talks about the good works prepared beforehand. That we would walk in them and do them. There are things to do. Now, how long do we all do this ministry? Ephesians 4.13, he goes on to say, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, that is, that we all have the same doctrine, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, that is, that we have intimacy with the same Lord. We're all seeking to know Jesus, right? He's our love. He's the one we pour out our affection to. He's the one we live for. That we want to know to a mature man. And what that means is that we all have the, that means that we have the same standards of growth. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Our measurement is Christ. In other words, we keep doing this ministry until this church looks like Jesus. And that's what we do. That that kind of maturity is what we're after. Spiritual maturity that looks like Christ. Polycarp went on to say, bishops, presbyters, deacons are imitations of the angelic glory. And of that economy which the scriptures say awaits those who follow the footsteps of the apostles having lived in perfection of righteousness according to the gospel. And so what he says there is that the elders are the imitations of God's glory. Listen, for us the saints. What does he mean by that? So that we can be imitations of God's glory too. That's what it's all about. Why do we need elders in this church? So that we can experience more of God's glory and know how to live more of God's glory. That's it. That's the idea. Augustine in the 300s wrote this to Valerius, his superior. He said, first and foremost... 
I beg your wise holiness to consider that there is nothing in this life, especially in our own day, more easy and pleasant and acceptable to men than the office of bishop or priest or deacon if its duties be discharged in a mechanical or psychophantic way. He says that's easy if you do it that way. But nothing more worthless and deplorable and meet for chastisement in the sight of God. And on the other hand, there, there is nothing in this life, and especially in our own day, more difficult, toilsome, and hazardous than the office of bishop or priest or deacon, but nothing more blessed in the sight of God if our service be in accordance with our captain's orders, end quote. This is Augustine saying this. For Augustine, the word bishop is the same as our understanding of elder. And what Augustine was saying is one of the sweetest marks of the church is when the the leading of the service in the church, the elders and the deacons, when they are doing it in accordance with our captain's orders. And they bring a, a sweetness to the church. Who's the captain? By the way, Jesus. And so the question for us here at GBC is, do we have elders and deacons serving like that? Now, this is not a roast your elder deacon uh, message, you know. (laughs) But I think we need to ask that question. where GBC is so committed to the ministry that we are growing and looking more and more like Jesus Christ every day. Every Sunday, every time we meet for flocks during the week. Are we going in that direction? How does GBC get more ministry focused? Listen, our spiritual growth is dependent upon that. It is one of the reasons why it is so difficult for me whenever I sometimes, you hear people say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. So, okay, what church do you go to? Don't go to a church. What are you talking about? You're not growing. You're not growing. You're not growing. So, well, that's very pious of you to say that. I mean, holier than thou of you to say that. I have my own special relationship with God and, and it's just mine and it's just kind of how I do things. So look, listen, you can believe that all you want, but God doesn't, it, God never told you that. You told yourself that. The scriptures do not support that kind of thinking. And we have to be under what the Lord says. All right, so let's make sure that we are in Titus because I have some stuff for you and this is actually going to spill over for about, I don't know, three weeks, I think, is what it's going to be, and then an evening. And I'm hoping to give some clarity for you uh, with this. Now, I just want to look at one verse this morning and, and then we're going to spend two more weeks unpacking the implications of this one verse for this church, GBC. If, if it could be a help to other churches, bless the Lord, amen. But my greatest care is us, this, here. So look at it, verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. What Paul says here is basically finish the ministry that I started. Now, Paul was always mindful that actually the real starter of ministry is God himself. Matthew 16, Jesus said, you know, I will build my church. And Paul never was looking to compete. Jesus is the one who has started every single true church. And so our task is to finish what he started. Can I remind you, and this is just coming to me here, but can I remind you of 1 Corinthians 3, of what Paul says when it comes 
to finishing the church. He says in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, Let no man, well, excuse me, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. There he is talking in that context about the whole church. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. And what he is saying and saying all of this is be careful about how you build, go about building the church. Do it the right way. Finish it the right way. Now it will, it will never be perfect, but our goal is to get closer, right? Oh, that we would be able to taste heaven before we get there. Now, as we think about this word ministry, we need to shape our minds by Scripture. Now, ministry is an Old Testament word. It's a fascinating word. It has lots of um, lots of things to it. And um, and throughout this next couple of weeks, I'm going to help us understand what this word ministry means in a greater de- greater way. But let me give us a simple verse to get us started. Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That sets the tone for how God deals with his people. That right there is a ministry term. The word ministry uh, is connected in the Old Testament in Leviticus to the word to serve. In the Old Testament, it was a priestly service. He connects it to a priestly service in Romans 12. What? And two. But that's how the Lord wants us to think of him as a shepherd, as shepherd to sheep. That is his relationship with us. And I love that picture because it's a picture that works. What I mean by that is literally works. It does work. I don't think... Uh, in the Old Testament and even in the New, that when you know, when you talked about shepherd, the people would stop and go, "Oh, you know that is it's very romantic what you're talking you know, when you talk like that. It's very you know affectionate and, and and sweet and all that. No, it's a very dirty work. Sheep. What's so glamorous about sheep? I mean. You tell a person that you work on horses, oh, hey, that's big and strong and majestic. I mean, that's something I can get on and ride. You can't do that with sheep, right? Just Sheep, you just kind of look at it and you go, well, I'm sure they're cute in their own way. You know, I mean, it just, there's, you know, yeah, you can get stuff from it, the wool and all that. And, and, you know, they just don't have that to it. So that when the Lord says that he is our shepherd, in some way, in a, in a sense, he's kind of kind of reminding us, he's kind of humbling us, isn't it? Hey, don't forget your sheep. Don't forget you are sheep. You are sheep. And you need a shepherd. And shepherds do work. And they get their hands dirty. And there's no, you know, there's, you, you, there's not the, it's not a glamorous magazine, right? Hey, the shepherd, you know. I mean, that's the, people aren't buying that. They like the ones where it's National Geographic and you're, you know, or you're safari guy and you're out there doing, that's, a, that's just, not, and it's meant to be that way. That's the picture. That's the relationship he wants us to have with one another, by the way. And you know, you can't read the Old Testament without seeing this. Genesis forty nine twenty four, Isaiah 53, 6, Psalm 78, Psalm 80, Psalm 100, verse 3. Listen to this. 
Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. That is how the Lord sees us. And that's who He is to us. Psalm 119, verse 176. I have, this is David, says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. For I do not forget your commandments. James Stitzinger reminds us, quote, The shepherd himself displayed his fatherly care, love, mercy, discipline, compassion, and delight toward his people, whom he desired to love and fear him with a pure heart. The image of a shepherd also demonstrates God's authority and faithfulness as well as the necessity and implications of obedience to him. Servant leaders exemplify both strengths and weaknesses as God uses them to carry out his sovereign plan in human history. End quote. That's big. So what he's saying is God uses his imagery of shepherding and then he carries his shepherding for us through his men. Stitzinger goes on to tell us there are five group of words that describe God's shepherding ministry to his people. Let me give them to you. The first is elder. Elder, that is the administration and spiritual guidance of the church. You could say this is ministry through example. We need elders. We need them to show us the way. Help us see where we need to go. Overseer is the second word. And that word sometimes is translated bishop. If you have the King James Version, it's translated bishop. And this word emphasizes guidance and oversight and leadership in the church. You could call this ministry through wisdom. Third word is pastor, which is sometimes translated shepherd. And this is a position, he says, a position denoting leadership and authority as well as guidance and provision. And you could call this ministry through discipleship and training and accountability. The fourth word is preacher, which points to public proclamation of the gospel and teaching the flock. You could call this ministry through moving motivation by using God's word. So using God's word to motivate and move people. Let me just give a caution to you parents. If you think the best way to move your kid is to yell at them, you're greatly mistaken and wrong. You might get immediate results you will not get internal nor eternal results with them that way. You want to move your kids? Give them God's word. Show them there's a higher authority than even your own. Preaching is moving people in God's direction with God's word. Then the the fifth word is teacher. And this is one responsible for instruction and exposition of the scriptures whose teaching is both instructive, 1 Timothy 2.7, and corrective, 1 Corinthians 12.28-29, end quote. Now this I would, I would call ministry through explanation. Explanation. Explaining God and explaining his will. Don't you want to know the reason? I mean, we want to know God because we love him. And then we want to know his will. Say, why say all of that? Because all of that is the ministry the Lord wants here at GBC. And it is all that Paul has in mind in Titus 1.5 when he says, set in order what remains. Finish it. 
All right, let me give to you five guides for us to make sure that we are finishing what our Lord Jesus has started when it comes to the ministry from Titus 1.5. And we have to be mindful of these. Point number one, let's call point number one the ministry context. Let's see the ministry context. Paul says, for this reason I left you in Crete. Now for Titus, the ministry context is Crete. For you and I, it's Fallon. One area surrounded by lots of water, the other by lots of dirt. We call it home. Now, who is Titus? Let's think about this here. Let's kind of work our way through this. Titus is uh, mentioned 13 times in the New Testament. Nine of those times are in 2 Corinthians. He's called a son of Paul, and he wasn't his literal son, but he was a son of the faith. And so what that tells you and me is that this is a person that Paul led to faith in Christ. He considered him to be a son. He's a man that, that was discipled by, by Paul. He was, he was trained. And by the way, there are only two in the New Testament that are called sons of Paul. That would be Timothy and Titus. So Titus was shepherded, he was, he was molded, he was shaped a certain way for the ministry by Paul himself. That letter from Paul, by the way, to the Corinthians is all about Paul defending his ministry as an apostle. And I just think the fact that Paul uses the name of Titus nine times tells you and I that Titus was so connected to Paul that to know him was to know Paul. If 2 Corinthians is a defense and you're going to use Titus nine times, that tells me Titus is the key to defending him in a human way. He, he, would, he would be the guy that's going to defend Paul, who's going to defend that his ministry was given to him by the Lord. To be ministered to by Titus, then, would be to be ministered to by Paul. And so to talk to Titus, he can vouch. He says, talk to Titus, Paul says. He can vouch for me because he knows me. So when Paul says he left Titus on Crete, it's like saying, I left myself there. Now, Titus was a letter written to a person, not to a church. What a person. Hey, he's saying, be this kind of pastor, Titus. Be this kind of elder. This kind of leader to the church. See? He says, influence them the right way. Now, Titus was a Gentile. He was not a half Jew like Timothy. And he probably served with Paul on his second and third missionary journeys. Just giving you some details about him. You can read about that in Acts 16 through 20. He's called a beloved disciple, Titus 1.4, a fellow worker, 2 Corinthians 8.23, and a faithful extension for the gospel ministry in Dalmatia, in 2 Timothy 4. Dalmatia is where modern Yugoslavia is. It seems that Paul led Titus to faith in Christ, and so there's great intimacy, there's great fellowship, there's great friendship that they have with one another. And Paul leaves Titus there on this island called Crete. Now, what is Crete? Crete is uh, an island that is located, if you can just picture on the map, Greece being here and Turkey being here, and then right below there's this island called Crete. And we really don't know much about the church situation on this island except that Paul brought the work of the gospel there and he left Titus there to finish it. And we know that he was supposed to get it done, by the way, as soon as he could because in chapter 3 of Titus, verse 12, he tells him, hey, you need to join me in, in Nicopolis, which is an area of northern Greece, Join me there for the winter. I'd like to have your fellowship. And so 
get on with this work, right? Let's go because you need the, that needs to be done so that you can get back to me. All right, we need to think about Crete a little bit more because this is the ministry context. Each community brings a context of ministry that you cannot ignore. And it would be very important for us to not ignore the, the, the community here in Fallon. We need to understand our community. And what I want you to see right away here is that this context of ministry created a wave of influence into the church. And so on the one hand, we probably need to get ourselves ingrained into our community. But on the other hand, we need to make sure that our community doesn't get ingrained in us. That is into our hearts. That is into our way of thinking or way of kind of the way the Lord wants us to be. Now look at Titus 1 verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, you might be thinking he's talking about the, the Americans, but these are the Cretans, okay? So what's, what's, what's Paul think of that kind of assessment? Verse 13, this testimony is true. So some guy said this, and you know what Paul says? Yeah, they're right. I can't, I can't. He says, I can't argue against that. They're not wrong. They're, you know, they're that. They're all of that. Notice that, you know, I mean, this, this is, um, I mean, what he's saying is then that it's true that on this island of Crete, people are generally liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That kind of character standard influenced all others around them. Notice the Jews in verse 10 and 11. Rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Those are the Jews. Verse 11, upsetting families, people that needed people that need to be silenced. And so what can we say about the Cretans? They're liars, they're lewd, and they're lazy, Right? And then you had the Jews who were false teachers and they needed to be silenced. And so you had family assassins here trying to kill off families at the character level, trying to get your commitment through your money, he says. And verses 13 and 16 tell us that there also were false teachers trying to shake the faith of others. watered down preaching and and then they taught myths and commandments of men and even questioned the veracity of the truth, the reliability of the Bible. It says that there in verse 14. These are people that profess to know God, that claim to be Christians, but denied him by living opposite of the truth. Verse 16. And what that tells you and me is that pervasive in this whole community, in this whole area, are people that are trying to make you think Christianity is something than what it is. Because if they profess to know him, but they deny him by their deeds, that means they're trying to convince you that they're Christians. With their mouth. But he says, look closely though. Their lives tell a different story. And the reason why this is very important to see this and understand this is because this is influential. And I think in this day and age, we are getting battered so hard by the supposed Christians out there, the ones that claim to be Christians but live so opposite of the Scripture that we begin to think, well, maybe that's Christianity. When it's not. And so their professions were so convincing it blinded people from their character and from their living. The people were also stubborn and pushed against the authority that came to them when, when, when the, the word of God was preached, according to chapter 2, verse 15. Crete was filled with people that were into arguments and friction and trivialities instead of truth. 
disputing about the law, always wanting to talk about worthless things, things that don't matter, instead of the truth, not taking sin seriously, according to chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. And Crete was filled with people that were not quick at all to meet or even see needs around them. So here's a person that has a need. Oh, really? Okay, well, that's interesting. Rather than being moved in their heart to do something. Now, you put all this together, and you can see the need for ministry. I mean, no wonder the Lord has provided elders for his church. I mean, we have our own version of liars and the lewd and the lazy right here in Fallon. People that talk a good game but are nothing like what they say. Listen, you will, we say this all the time, but you will only go as far as your character, beloved. Get that down. Everything you say, listen, let me say it this way. And if you think I'm right now I'm trying to step on your toes, I am. I am. Everything you say, everything you do, your actions, are being interpreted from other people by your character. So you can say what you want to say, but your character helps them interpret it. When the church starts to look like the community, let me tell you this. We as believers are salt and light in this world, the Bible tells us, Matthew 5. And Fallon should be looking and saying to the true believers in Christ, there's our hope. Well, at least we've got those people. Because they love Christ. Maybe someday there's hope for us to love Christ and to know Him and to live without the anxieties that we always live with and to live without the vices that always keep us sinning and to live in the ways where we're constantly wasting our lives by wasting our money and wasting our time. We are to be salt and light in this community and it starts with our ministry to one another right here in this church body. That's why we need elders to help us stay at that level, to be at that level. That ministry flows right out the doors and into the homes and lives of the lost out there. But it starts here. So we can't ignore the ministry context. Hosea 4 says, like people, like priests, right? The people go no further than their priests that move them in that direction. See? Now let's see the second one. That's the ministry context. Point number two, let's see the ministry conundrum. The ministry conundrum. Now, a conundrum is a puzzle or a problem or, or some potential snag, some mystery. Paul tells Titus, that you would set in order what remains. Now listen, this implies something critical that, that, that we, we need to understand and take to heart. Now some things are pretty obvious. But even though they are obvious, they can still remain a problem and can still go unfixed or undealt with. Okay? Have you ever watched your kids... Or spouse, walk by those dirty dishes without laying a hand. And, you know, what do you say? Uh, yeah, didn't you see those dishes that needed to be washed? You didn't hear them calling your name? Right? I mean, of course they did. And they did nothing, right? Didn't you see that your room was dirty and you need to clean it up? Yes, they did. That's, see, what's the thought? I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And of course, you know, we always like to convince our spouse. Oh, no, no, it, it's on there. It's on the list, right? It's on, the, it's on there. I'm going to get to it, and you know, and it'll all be, everybody be happy. It's on the later list. 
Paul didn't just assume that Titus would see the ministry wasn't finished. He made sure that he brought it to his attention. He didn't just say, well, you know, I mean, I'm not going to mention it because you know what, you know the work that needs to be done. He made sure he reminded him. He made sure to point it out. Now, not that Titus would have been one of those lazy ones, but he needed reminded. He needs reminded. Set in order what remains. Notice, it's not done, Titus. Here's the conundrum, and it is this, that there's always work to do. And what happens is you and I, we see it and we go, oh, this thing is never ending. I'm just going to take a break. I'm going to you know, go do something else. This is hard. I'm just going to close my eyes and pretend, right? Ministry is a never-ending work, beloved, and I believe that's why we stop doing it. We either get tired or discouraged or both. Paul told the Galatians in his letter to them, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Love that. Galatians 6.9. Hebrews 12.3, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Always think that it was harder for Jesus. Finish it. Follows the same line as sanctification. It is a never-ending work. Holiness has that kind of stream, right? That, that kind of need. And Paul had to remind the believers in Philippi, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Press on. He says, I've got to keep reminding myself that I've got to keep going. I'll tell you this, beloved, the worst place for the church to be is when it thinks that it is okay or good or perfect or that it just is enough. We are in trouble. That means that the church, by the way, is always in the what remains place. The question then is this, why is it that the, why is the church all in the always? That they're always in what, the, what remains place. Let me give you a thought, and it's from Colossians 1. I think I mean, Paul understood this so well, of course. But what Paul did is he tried to use vivid imagery to get you and I to really feel it. And to understand it. Listen to this. He understood the church was in the, it was in this um, what remains place. Verse 23, Colossians 123, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. In filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he said Christ was beaten badly to death. And the world is not done beating him up. And he said, I will gladly take those beatings for him to finish. He says to, fit, to filling up what is lacking, that I do my share on behalf of his body, the church. And what he is saying is, what helps me is I never forget that this church is Christ's body. That's the first thing. Never forget this church. It's his body and his body is going to take some blows. Second thing, I never forget that I have a stewardship given to me by Jesus himself. 
Jesus himself gave it to me. Verse 25, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And that tells me that the church is in process. And when I remind myself that it's a stewardship, I remind myself it's not mine. It belongs to someone else. And so I'm finishing what he started because it belongs to him, but it's a privilege to be included in that. And by the way, he tells us even why. Why go through all of this? Because it's Christ's body, so it needs to look like him. And so as a minister, I'm willing to suffer whatever it takes. Secondly, it, it, it needs what I can give her. What can I give her? The word of God. So preach it. That's the stewardship. Why? Notice the value. Verse 26. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What are those riches? Which is Christ in you, the hope of of glory. Paul says, I'm committed to the ministry of the church because it doesn't realize this amazing ministry. Do you realize that? A big part of the work of an elder is to help you understand what you don't realize. You say, oh no, I, I'm starting to get this. Everything. No, no, no. No, you you don't really. I'm telling you, it's so amazing. We got to keep digging deeper. See what you keep talking about this doctrine of salvation and everything. Why? Because it's so amazing. There's way more in there. By the way, what is this amazing mystery that Christ is in every single believer that makes up? this church body, every single one true Christian. Christ in you, and we got to get Christ shining out so that people can look at this church and not get confused. I mean, outsiders are to take one look at it and come to the conclusion, yeah, this belongs to Jesus. It's God. Look at those people. Who could really be like that? Who could live like that? Well, we don't do it on our own. We can't. It's got to be Christ in us. How do we know it belongs to Jesus? Well, it looks like Him. And so the ministry conundrum is that it is not done yet. It's not done. By the way, set in order what remains is the word in, the, in Greek, epidio. Thorao. Happy Diorthao. It has the word orthao, orthos, or ortho. The word ortho is where we get the English word to straighten out something crooked or broken like a bone, right? Orthotics help, you know, with your foot and so forth. That thing where it needs to be. To make something upright, to make something straight. Orthodoxy, to make your worship straight. That's the idea of that word ortho. And he's got a couple of compound prefixes put to it. And so this is like super ortho. Something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be refined, something that needs to be sharpened or trained or perfected or shaped in a greater way. See, our conundrum when it comes to ministry will always be that we think we've, we think we're doing enough. We're, it's, we're fine. We're fine. Quit shaking the boat. We're, we're okay. We like the way it is. No, no. We're way too comfortable. We feel way too okay about ourselves. So the Lord says, Titus, you got to go there and shake it up.
shaped in a greater way, you need to see that the church is in process. A stagnating church is a dying church. Third guide for the ministry, number three, the ministry command. Let's call this the ministry command. What is the ministry command? Well, look at what Paul tells Titus. Appoint elders. Appoint elders. Now, the thing that is the most in process is at the leadership level. Who are, who are the leaders? I mean, you, you know, you, you only go as far as your leaders. And that's why it was code red when Jesus was arrested. You remember that? He was arrested. Now, prophecy, the prophet said, strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. But boy, I tell you, did that really happen, huh? He was arrested and boom, just like that, they're gone. And it's the reason why he kept having to tell them, hey, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, John 14. He says, I know that you're struggling in your heart. I know, John 16. I know there's deep sorrow in there. But don't forget, the sorrow that you have is like a woman having a baby. It is very, it's, you're about to go through a very, very, very difficult thing. But the result of it is going to be joy. And so how important a leader is. He was taken, and they, they went into just code red. And his men scattered. Jesus told his men in Matthew 9, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. We should be praying that the Lord would raise up leaders here in this church. That's what he says. Jesus says, pray that the Lord would get workers to do work. The church needs workers, servants, leaders who who clearly are, are, are there to lead in a way where they serve Jesus Christ. Servant leaders. Now why is... Why is that the thing that Paul latches onto when he says, set in order what remains, appoint elders? The idea of elders leading the Lord's church isn't an obscure thing. We need to be clear. The church isn't an elder ruled church. Did you know that? So you say, well, what's your church? Is it congregational? Is it elder? Would you be surprised to know that it's neither? No, this church is to be a Christ-ruled church led by the apostles. You say, well, what? Who are the apostles? Well, they're dead. But Jesus set it up that it would be led apostolically. This is what is meant in Acts 2.42 where it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. He said, oh, if only the apostles could have left us what they taught. They did. It's called the New Testament. You see how that works? You say, well, what were the apostles teaching us? Jesus' words. So where did they get that from? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Making disciples. Go therefore, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Oh. So, if we listen to the apostles because they listen to Jesus then our church will be led by Christ right? that's right so what kind of elders do you need to find? ones that are closely tied to the apostles who are closely tied to Jesus so that it becomes really clear Jesus is the one leading this church he makes it simple And so Jesus is really the head of the true church. And 
And he calls the shots, and that's why the elder's direction is always this, to know the one will of the Lord Jesus as passed down through the apostles. That's it. Now, why is it important that the church go and appoint elders? Well, to get them moving into this one will of the Lord Jesus, right? And to keep them moving in that direction, see? Now, I want to quickly show you this, and we're going to really spend a few more weeks, and so that's the reason why I'll just mention some things. Um, But let me give you the short version. Turn to Acts 13 for just a moment. By the way, uh, not a casual walk. Put on your uh, running shoes. We're going to be sprinting through these verses as I go through them. All right. Uh, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Saul and Barnabas to the work. In that, in the, uh, then it, it says this, the work which he called them to do. Now, what is this work? To go preach the gospel. Who, who did this? It's the Holy Spirit. So it's a calling. It's, a, it's work. What work? You see, the work of the gospel, right? Preaching it. Well, that's sort of true, but it's not the complete truth. And I'm going to show you here. Look at chapter 14. The preaching of the gospel, by the way, is not the whole work. You say, oh, I thought it was just always about the preaching of the gospel. It is, but you have to understand what that means. Acts 14, same missionary uh, journey, and and they're, they're still in Galatia, verse 21. After they have preached the gospel of that city to a city called Derby, okay, and they have made many disciples, they return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Now, those are cities that they preached the gospel uh, to, and they made many disciples in those cities earlier. And so you have this process preach the gospel, make many disciples, two steps preach the gospel, make many disciples. And you know, that takes time. I mean, that's not a, hey, we do this today, and then tomorrow we do this, and then, you know, next week we're doing the other thing. This is a, it takes time. And so you have to be patient, and you have to, you know, be willing to be in the process. Just keep doing that. And then the third thing, after a time, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, you have no idea who a true believer is, right? You have no idea who is truly born again. People can hear with the biological ears that they have, but we don't know that they're hearing with the ears of, spiritual ears of the heart. People can say they believe, but, if, but listen, if regeneration hasn't taken place, hasn't happened yet. Don't ever forget, true saving faith is transformation. Yeah, I mean, it, it results in an exchange. Now, check this out. A, a change that is an exchange of allegiance from sin to Christ. A change of masters from following self to following Jesus. And the way you can spot, by the way, a follower of Jesus is to see if his word matters to them. So what do you you mean by that? Well, look for obedience. Listen, you care about obeying him because it matters to you. You You can spot it because you go to the person with the word of God and they go, oh, that's really nice and they don't do anything. You think, well, are, do you belong to him? Like, is he? I thought you were one of his. Humble submission, love, love for his words. So the first step, preach the gospel. Second one, make many disciples. Third, strengthen those disciples to stay, to stay faithful to Christ. Encourage them in that faithfulness. Listen, you don't stay faithful to a religion. 
You don't urge them to be faithful to a movement or even to a church. You urge them to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Why? Because persecution is around the corner. The fires of trials reveal the the saving faith of true believers. And so that's the reason why he says, continue in the faith. And then there's a fourth thing that you do next. Verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them. Notice in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed And that's the fifth thing. Commend them. And by doing that, you leave it in the hands of the gracious, sovereign God and you just leave because it's in good hands. Notice though, appoint elders. Acts 15, you see the same thing. In fact, you can see the presence of elders in almost every chapter from here to Acts 20. In fact, Philippians, you can turn to Philippians, just the very first verse. Crucial to the Lord's church, when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, first verse, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. I especially need you elders and deacons to pay attention to all the instruction and doctrine and life that I'm giving you. All the stuff on humility and statements like for to me to live as Christ and to die is gain were especially for the elders and deacons. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus, or earlier that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, or rejoice in the Lord always. Be anxious for nothing, but in prayer, by, in everything by prayer, or I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Listen, all of that was for everybody, but especially the elders and deacons. Go get, de- go get elders like that. Why? Because the Lord leads his church through men like that. And you can, you can see the presence of elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5 and John, 1 John 4 and James 5. They're everywhere. So Paul tells Titus, you got to finish what I started. I've given you guys the gospel. I've made disciples. I've strengthened those disciples. I need you to go appoint elders. You know, you're not, he says, you're not really a church without elders. What's an elder? There's a few shade of the, shades of the word. Presbuteros, one who is older. In the context of the Lord's church, it's, it's one who is spiritually mature. One who could be an example of Christ to the church. One who has the seasoned wisdom to help us go where the Lord wants us to go. Now, by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean lots of years of experience. I mean, if you have experience doing the wrong things, that doesn't make you the right person, right? So, you know, experience says something, but just a little. There's a wisdom element. There's a character element to this kind of ministry. That we'll learn more about that. There's a shepherding element, and that's the word episkopos, which is, simply means to look over, to have a, a, a sight over the whole, like a sentinel who is up in the tower looking over all the people. And he looks over all the people to make sure that they're safe, but also looks out to see the lurkers. To see ones bringing danger to the sheep. Now let me tell you, when I give you that imagery, don't misunderstand what I'm saying 
or what this is saying. The elder is not distant. He's not way above them in some stoic or indifferent way. He needs to be able to see and be close enough so that he can jump in immediately and protect and help and bring care. The fourth point, I'm just going to give you them and then we're going to have to get deeper into this for next next time. I'll give it to you so you can, so you have, so you can just have something to write there in your notes. Um, number four, the, the fourth point is the ministry consistency. Notice he says in every city. He did it the same way in every city. We, boy, we live in America where everything's individualistic and it's all about your own style. Not Paul. He says, do it the same way. Just do it the same way. We'll talk a little bit about that. And the last one is the ministry charge. Paul says, as I directed you. The word is literally diatasso and it literally means to give a command, to give an order. Through the order is what it, the word literally means. Through the order. This is an order. Now as I bring this to a close, let me make this pers- really personal. How do we go about appointing elders at GBC? Ha- have you noticed that we only have one? He says appoint elders, that's plural. Okay, so we're a little bit of a place. There's a reason for that, and I'm going to get into that over the next two weeks. We're going to answer lots of questions. What is an elder? What does he do? Why, why do we need them? Why is that important to Jesus? You'll notice that Paul doesn't really give the process, by the way, for how you get from one or even no elders to having a plurality of elders. But you just do it. So how does GBC do this? And how can we obey the Lord in appointing elders here? We are going to go through this in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. And by the time we get to the end of this deal here, hopefully we'll have a little bit of an idea how to do this and what our next steps need to be and why this is so important. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for giving us always more than what we deserve. We love Christ. We pray that he would be magnified in uh, all things that we say and do. And help us in this process, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.